Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Warren Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media for my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unbreakable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So before we get started, I want to apologize to the uh, to the audience where we've had some technical difficulties that prevent us from using our primary sound system. So we're doing this over um, over telephone. But uh, by the next time we publish an episode, we should be back to normal, and I'm sure it'll be entirely um, uh, entirely audible. It just won't have that same uh, FM radio NPR quality that I know that uh, that that you guys are used to. But um, you know the content's going to be great, so hang in there. And the topic for today is, should I set up a trust? And, um, you know, the, the, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this topic up is um, I think trusts are not all that well understood. In fact, I'm pretty confident they're not all that well understood. And in light of the uh, victory of the Democrats at the ballot box, at least at the federal level, in the 2020 election, um, there has been an increased interest in forming trusts as a mechanism for asset and wealth protection, um, because there has been at least a prevailing feeling that taxes uh, on estates and gifts are going to increase above what they historically have been, certainly in recent years. Whether that will actually happen, nobody can say, but people are sort of, people are, you know, I know they're acting uh, proactively in, in that regard. But trusts go a long way beyond, or, yeah, are, are, much, are a much wider topic than simply um, rich people stashing money away so they don't have to pay as much as state and gift tax. There are numerous kinds of trusts available. And I think one of the things we're going to learn about today is Although maybe we associate trusts with ultra high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals would be somebody with $20 million of, of, of net assets, something like that, because, uh, you know, you don't even start to have a taxable estate until you're around $10.5 million or so if you're a married couple. So, um, uh, but, but I think what we're going to learn today is that trusts actually can be a very useful mechanism for many other different purposes rather beyond simple asset protection. And you may very well benefit if you don't fall into that category of the ultra high net worth individual. And joining us today to help us talk about this topic is Richard Morgan of Morgan and DeSalvo. 
Richard Morgan has been practicing law in Georgia since 1987. I just learned from our conversation prior to the show, we're actually both, he actually comes from Virginia and I got married in Virginia, which is uh, actually a great town. I really enjoyed being there. I go back in a heartbeat. Richard founded the award-winning Alpharetta Law Firm of Morgan and DeSalvo PC in 1995 to help individuals and families plan and prepare for the many changes that life brings. Richard prides himself on bringing peace of mind to individuals and families by helping them prepare for significant life events. In addition to the primary practice areas of the firm, Richard also specializes in finding creative solutions for clients in the areas of estate and tax planning, estate and trust dispute resolution, business succession planning, planning for special needs beneficiaries, creditor protection, charitable gift planning, and tax controversies. A leader in this field, Richard is past president of the taxation sections of both the Georgia and Atlanta Bar Association, the estate planning and probate section of the Atlanta Bar Association, the North Georgia Estate Planning Council, and the Georgia Planned Giving Council. Richard serves on the executive, legislative, and Georgia Trust Code Revision Committees of the Fiduciary Law Section of the Georgia Bar Association, and he serves on a two-member subcommittee of the Fiduciary Law Section to propose a technical corrections bill to improve upon the 2017 Georgia Uniform Power of Attorney Act. Um, Morgan and DeSalvo is recognized as a U.S. News and World Report best and bestlawyers.com best law firm since 2013. They received the highest tier one rating in trust and estate law distinction held by only 23 law firms in Georgia. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Richard, let's let's start at the very foundation. Um, what is a trust? Great question. So, trusts are what estate planners use, uh, kind of like a Swiss Army knife. You can think about them in different ways. Uh, legally, it's a fiduciary relationship. Someone is in charge of assets, uh, and they follow the terms of the trust on behalf of the beneficiaries. Uh, but what I like to think about also is a three-party contract. You have one party who sets this thing up, this entity like, think like an LLC or other business entity, just a different kind of entity called the trust. So you have someone set it up, and they're the ones that put the assets into the trust. They actually give them to the person who will be in charge, who is called the trustee. The trustee is required to follow the terms of the trust on behalf of the third party, the beneficiaries. So someone gives someone else assets, and they hold them and handle them and invest them and take care of them, all on behalf of the beneficiaries. And those three parties can all be the same person. They can all be different. You can mix and match. It's all about what you're trying to achieve. And you basically, we use this structure in different ways to achieve different benefits. And And... You know, I think when many of us think of trust, myself included, candidly, we think of a trust as a place where um, rich people stash money to protect them from taxes and sometimes creditors. But there are different kinds of trust and not necessarily for that purpose, aren't there? Yes. So the main trust that people will come across is as the primary estate planning document. The document says, what happens to my stuff when I die? Uh, also, it can handle manage your affairs while you're alive if you need assistance. And so, it's it's and that type of trust is revocable. You can change it anytime you want. You can amend it anytime you want. You can move assets in and out of it. It has no tax implications. It uses your social security number as a tax ID number. Uh, but it serves as your primary estate planning document to say what happens if uh, incapacity, death, that type of thing. 
The other types of troughs are primarily irrevocable. Irrevocable trusts are used for asset protection, for gifting, uh, and those for basic tax reasons, usually wealth transfer tax reasons, gift tax, estate tax, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes for income tax reasons at the state income tax level, like the Georgia, wherever you live, state tax level. Uh, but normally they don't, they don't normally give you any significant income tax benefits at the federal level. So um, I, I like to bring up sort of current events here um, because I, I think there's an opportunity to make an important distinction. You know, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the with the, the Britney Spears um, ongoing conservatorship battle. Looks like it may be finally hitting some kind of resolution. From afar, conservatorships like that appear to have some elements, some things that look trust-like um, uh, in nature. And uh, I was hoping you kind of draw a distinction. What is it, if there is a distinction, maybe there's not, is there a distinction between a conservatorship and a trust? And if so, what, what are the key differences? All right, that's a great question. So let's go through some basics. What is estate planning? So estate planning uh, is the following. Right now, you control all aspects of your life. You can do whatever you want as long as you're hurting anyone else or break the law. Do whatever you want. But what if you can't? incapacity or death. There is a court-based system for all, to deal with all those issues. The problem is that court-based system is not very pleasant. Uh, as you can see with Britney Spears' situation, which I'm uh, fairly familiar with, and it kind of freaks me out about how she's being, how this is working. It would not happen like that in Georgia. I can tell you that right now. But in, I believe, California, wherever she's at, there's, uh, I guess her system is a little different, and it is state law-based. But basically, there's a, there's a, if you do not have your own estate plan, then the court-based process is what kicks in. If you become incapacitated, then there's a conservatorship of your property, there's a guardian of the person, and then when you die, there is a state law will, which is the rules of intestacy. And all of those processes are basically set up under the assumption that the court needs to oversight. They need to appoint someone to be in charge and then oversight them because you didn't do it. The court did it and they don't know who all these people are. So they're going to figure out a way that they can court oversight, get accountings and returns and, you know, have this court oversight of process. Not very exciting, not very pleasant. But what the law allows us to do is to privatize almost the entire thing. So if you do your state planning properly, there is no need for a guardianship, almost always. There is no need for a conservatorship, almost always. There is no need for the intestacy uh, process, almost always. What you do is you create, for example, everyone needs what I would call a base estate plan, basic documents everyone needs. There are two agency documents. One is for financial matters. So instead of having a conservatorship over your property, you have a financial power of attorney and you appoint an agent you do, not the court, to handle your affairs for you if you need assistance. Then you have an advance in Georgia, it's called an advanced directive for healthcare. In different states, it's called different things. But you appoint an agent to assist you with medical-related matters, and it's your HIPAA representative, instead of a guardianship, which is court-appointed. So for everything that court would do, you can privatize it. And then instead of having the intestacy process, uh, if you have no will, you have your own will that says what happens to your property when you pass. 
And whereas local living trust-based structure is just a different way of handling your affairs at, uh, during your life and at your passing. So you, you mentioned something about the differential between California and Georgia. And I'm curious about two things. Number one, which state is more representative nationwide? Is Georgia the outlier? Or is California the outlier? Maybe both of them are outliers. So I am not a California lawyer, so I can only look from afar. There was a movie that came out recently where, I don't remember the name of it, where a woman was basically taking advantage of people, getting them committed, and then she would then manage their affairs. And they couldn't get out of it didn't have a lawyer representing their interests. I was cringing. Uh, in Georgia, it's the opposite. In Georgia, the courts do not favor someone taking over your life involuntarily. So they try to limit what the, to what extent they take it over. Um, so it just, I do not believe what is happening in California would happen in Georgia because they don't, they tend away from doing it in the first place. They need their own, like, uh, let me give you an example. So I have a client, and my client is starting to suffer incapacity issues, and I can see they're getting taken advantage of. One question is, can I help get a, uh, let's say that the agent who they chose is not a good person, taking advantage of them. So they need a court to come in and protect them. I can't even do it. I have to get them a different lawyer because they need their own lawyer. The court, the court needs some independent person. It's a very uh, protective process in Georgia. They don't take lightly taking with people's rights because when you do a conservatorship or guardianship, you are literally taking away their human rights, rights to their property, rights to their body, and they're giving them to someone else. And then the court oversights that other person. So they just take it very seriously in Georgia. And I would say that in most states, they take it very seriously. Some states aren't as, uh, they don't take it as seriously or as protective, and I'm assuming California is like that, which is why it's happening. So are, 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 are trusts just for estate planning and wealth protection, or are there other reasons to set one up? I guess the question is, what else is there? If you give me an example of what you're thinking about, I may be able to come up with a, come up with a reason so, why you... So, so you know, are, are there are there trusts that are that are set up, for example, to manage somebody's health care, right? For example, you just talked about somebody whose 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 health is deteriorating, right? And over time, they may lose capacity, right? A trust might be set up for their benefit just just to maintain their health care, for example. Is that is that is that a thing or not? I've never heard of that thing. Uh, so basically, I'm probably wrong. The trust deals with property assets, income, it deals with wealth, whether it's a dollar or a billion, it deals with assets. Um, healthcare is a, is a personal uh, thing to your own body. Uh, and so if you had someone who needed assistance or in becoming incapacitated, you would you could use the trust, the combination of a power of attorney with revocable trust is by far the best vehicle to help manage someone's affairs with little hassle and um, less just it's a more powerful, less hassle, uh, that you can make someone's life easier to help you. When it comes to the healthcare aspect, though, it's not the trustee or the power of attorney agent who's dealing with that. You need someone to represent your body, your body rights, your healthcare rights, and that would be an agent under healthcare power of attorney 
for a advancement for healthcare, or you go through the court system, um, which is um, the guardianship. There are so, there's also a profession that exists, and I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but um, they will act as healthcare advocates. So you can hire them like a service provider, like you hire an accountant or a lawyer, you can hire one of these healthcare advocates uh, who will assist you with your healthcare uh, on your behalf. Okay. And, and so, you know, how, how does a trust fit into an overall estate plan? Does it, for example, does it replace a will? Does it operate alongside a will? Are there other, other pieces it fits into? How, how does that fit within the overall jigsaw puzzle? So, the way I would say it is, you, your base plan includes the financial power of attorney, the healthcare document, which you call Advanced Directive Healthcare in Georgia, and then a will. You may or may not need a revocable living trust. If you have a revocable living trust as your main estate plan document, then you would still have a will, but instead of it being the big, you know, kind of all-encompassing document that says what happens to your stuff when you die, it instead is just a coordinating document. It just says, appoint the executor to be in charge, and the executor, please transfer, pay my debts, and then transfer any remaining assets over into my revocable trust, because that's where my primary plan is located. So either the will is your primary document, or it's just a coordinating document, along with the revocable trust, which would be your primary document. And that revocable trust would say, while I'm alive and I'm in good shape, I'm the trustee. I'll take care of myself with the assets. I can move assets in and out. There's, I can do whatever I want. If I become incapacitated, my co-trustee or backup successor trustee will take over, manage the assets for my benefit, and then at my death, it acts like a will but outside the probate process. It just says whatever you wanted to happen at your death, that's what will happen. And, and I read recently that that's actually a, a benefit of a trust is that trust if I read correctly, generally, if there's some kind of dispute, are generally not handled in the probate court, but elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah. So in a good number of states, we would call them bad probate states. We're in Georgia. The closest state to us that is a closest state to us that is a bad probate state is the state of Florida. It's a horror show. Uh, I don't know what they're doing, but lawyers change the law, and it's really, really bad. And so you're required to hire a lawyer for the administration process, probate process. In Georgia, you do not have to. You do not have to. You can. We recommend you do. You do not have to. In Florida, they have the lawyer's compensation in the code, of which is a percentage of your estate, approximately 3% if I uh, am correct. Uh, so literally, Florida law requires you to make a lawyer a part of your estate. That is insane. So everyone who has a decent lawyer, a decent amount of assets, will use a put all their assets or all they can put into a revocable trust while they're alive. So set up a revocable trust, put all their assets into it they can put into it without causing tax problems. And then when they die, they don't go through the probate process. They avoid those laws. And then Florida went ahead and made other cockamamie laws because everyone was avoiding probate. They came up with all new stuff about augmented states, all kinds of crazy stuff. Georgia is the polar opposite. And I would say most states are kind of between the two. Georgia is what I would call a simple probate state. It is purely administrative. Uh, you never see a judge. It's purely going to the clerk. 
which is going like to the DMV, like you have a driver's license kind of stuff. It's just administrative. You fill out some documents that are on the probate uh, court's website. Uh, as long as everyone is an adult who is an heir and closest living relative, if you follow it, you follow this document with the original will, the heirs all sign off saying, yep, that's the original will. I have no problem with that. It's purely administrative. Uh, the clerk says, raise your right hand. Do you agree to follow the terms of the will? The proposed executor says, yes, I do. And then the clerk gives the executor a document called letters testamentary. It says they're the executor and they're off. And if you have a good will, you need a good will. But if you have a good will, it waves everything up. You never go to the probate court again. So in Georgia, it's very simple. But in states like Florida, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, and others, it can be uh, a pretty painful and expensive process that you would like to avoid. Here, we just don't care. And are there restrictions on in which state you can set up the trust? For example, do I have to be a Georgia resident to set up a Georgia trust, or can I do it from out of state and just say I want to have it set up under the laws of Georgia? Well, that's good, good question. Okay, so why would you want to do that? Is it reason... You would want to do that because you want the easier probate process. Is that what you're asking? Well, it could be for whatever reason, right? I just, you know, I like, I like one state over the other. And, and one of the exactly. things that brings us to mind is that uh, I've noticed that in recent years, setting up certain kinds of trusts in Wyoming have right. gained in popularity. And I'm pretty sure they don't actually live in Wyoming. Got and it. So, right. so, that me... so this came up beginning with. Uh, the state of Alaska uh, starting to make really creative uh, trust law, uh, and which then went to Delaware, Tennessee, Nevada, South Dakota, Wyoming. They have created more and more liberal, flexible trust law. And so the question becomes, can someone who doesn't live in those states, because pretty much all of those states, but Tennessee is what I would call a low population density state. There aren't many people who live in Delaware. There aren't people who live in Nevada, except for maybe um, going gambling. There just aren't that many people in these states with these really aggressive laws. They're trying. They're they're making their laws more beneficial, uh, more liberal to get economic activity. So the question is, most people in this country don't live in those states. So can they get the benefit of these more liberalized, uh, potentially more beneficial trust law? And the answer right. is maybe. So number one, you've got to follow their law to get access to their law. That normally means you need to know a person, an individual in that state, a resident of that state to be the trustee, or more likely, you will hire a trust company in the other state. Uh, that puts the stick in the dirt and allows, gives you nexus to that state. And then you have to do things like have some administration or some activities in that state trying to get you to have con sufficient contact to that state field to use their law. And so if you do that, we believe that you can get access to all of their law except there's an exception, and this is the unknown. The exception is, is the law in that state against a strong public policy of the forum state where you live? And this came up. We've seen con law in the last 10 years, last, last 15, 20 years, like crazy. So if we saw same-sex marriage, this happened in, in real time. So you had states that allowed same-sex marriage, and you had some states that didn't. 
So you, let's say Georgia did not. So you had someone leave the state of Georgia, go to, I think Nevada did. So you went to Nevada, you got married, same-sex marriage, you came back to Georgia. The question is, are you married in Georgia? And the answer was, they said, no, you're not married here because you got married in a state where it was allowed. That's fine, but we don't allow it because it's against a strong public policy of our state. Now, on that issue, the Supreme Court came back in and said, you don't have that choice. It's a federal constitutional issue. You have no choice. Same-sex marriage is okay. But we saw it in action. Now go to what's happening right now. You have what's called self-settled. And the way that was the main reason people are going to these other states. And the main reason they're going is you can set up a trust for your own benefit and not have creditors get to it. And in theory, get the same estate planning or state tax benefits as if you give up all the rights. So normally, for you to have a completed gifting transfer to save estate taxes and or to avoid creditor claims with those assets, you have to cut away all the rights that you that you had in the property. So you're the person that sets the trust up. You give away the asset, put it in the trust. You can have no rights. You have no technical rights. You have cannot be the trustee. You cannot be a beneficiary. In those states, they allow you to be a fully discretionary beneficiary with an independent trustee. So you would put in a trust company primarily, and then you or you could have other, other unrelated parties. Uh, but you cannot be a trustee. But you can be a beneficiary. So if you ever need access to those assets, the trustee can make a distribution to you. You can't do that in Georgia and get the benefits they're trying to achieve, either asset protection, avoiding creditors, or getting state tax benefits and the like. Uh, but in those other states, you can. So the question is, can I be in a state that does not allow self-settled asset protection trusts? Can I put a stick in the dirt in the other state? I hire a trust company. I set up the trust in the other state. I follow their rules. Can I use their rules in Georgia? And it comes up when someone wants to sue you. So you owe money, and the creditor says, where are your assets? Well, I got some assets in a trust, but they're not mine. I can't touch them. And that's where the tire hits the road. Can the creditor get into that trust? And the answer is, if the other state's law applies, you can't get, creditor cannot get in. If Georgia law applies, you can get in. Because Georgia law says a self-settled trust which they trust where you put assets in and retain a benefit gives you zero asset protections, none, which was a creditor slice right through it. So the question was, what law applies? And the answer is, we don't know. Um, that's the unknown. You'll have uh, two camps. One says, yeah, it works. One says, we're not sure it works. There haven't been any, there hasn't been any good cases on point. All the ones that have been on point have been bad fact cases, and they all say it doesn't work. Uh, but the people that believe in it, believe when they get good facts, it will work. Um, and or, even if it doesn't work, that the cost of breaking the trust is so high, it's such a pain, and it's so costly because of the legal system to break it, that it will be protected just from uh, creditors not wanting to go through the hassle factor. So, so I see. So, in in part, then, I mean, it may what what may govern the law then is is many 
you know, business contracts have some clause that indicate that this contract is to be subject to the laws of state X or state Y. Correct. And um, if you're if you're putting your trust in a protection friendly state, right, then that, that that probably needs to be part of an overall comprehensive strategy where whatever business agreements into which you are entering, and you think you may want to have your assets protected from that for whatever reason, you want to make sure that that agreement says it's going to be governed by the laws of that state. Yeah. So historically, um, business agreements, a lot of companies will incorporate, we don't do that, but a lot of companies will incorporate in Delaware. Delaware is a very company-favorable state. So they will incorporate there. They'll say, if you have a dispute, you got to sue there, all that kind of stuff. That law is tried and true, and it works. It's not against public policy. So for business contracts, as long as there's a nexus to that state, and they get to Delaware because they incorporate in Delaware. So there you are. They have nexus to Delaware. It's all good. From their perspective, the, in the trust world, it's not quite the same thing. There's no like incorporation. You can set your trust up there, but the question is, what provisions of the state law are at issue? And if there is a particular state law, like the self-sort asset protection trust legislation, if it is not permissible in Georgia and is permissible in the other states, it is that against a strong public policy? in Georgia if they're getting sued in Georgia. And that's where the issue is. It's not just in general, it's on specific issues uh, of concern. Okay. So let's um, let's let's draw back a little bit here to a higher altitude and a broader perspective. Um, is, is there a is there a, a minimum amount of assets in terms of monetary value that you know, it makes sense to go through the trouble, fee, expense, et cetera, of setting up a trust, or is is a trust potentially a vehicle that almost anybody might want to use? So let's talk about what kind of trust, and then I'll tell you about kind of where, where it makes sense. If we're talking about an irrevocable trust, that is only normally done by wealthier individuals or families in order, usually for tax purposes, or they have uh, more significant asset protection concerns, and then there's a whole nother rabbit hole you go down on asset protection. So that is for more significant assets. Uh, we're trying to deal with taxes or asset protection or a combo. The revocable uh, trust, that is a primary state planning document, excuse me, and that one can be done by pretty much anyone. It's just a question of, it does, the way I look at it is this. From Dealing with a lawyer and creating these documents, a will is less money and a little bit less hassle. A revocable living trust-based structure, a little bit more money, a little bit more hassle. And so the question is, well, why would I want to pay more money and have more hassle if I can just go with a will in a simple probate state like Georgia, assuming you're in a state like Georgia? Uh, and the answer is, it only makes sense if the benefits of the revocable trust decently outweigh the cost and the hassle. And we just did a, we do monthly newsletters in our law practice. And the last one I did, which was last month, a few weeks ago, was on that exact issue. Should you go with a will or revocable living trust-based structure? And when I ended up doing it, it came up with 11 different benefits uh, that a revocable trust could provide. And so the way I think about it is you kind of go through 11 benefits and you say, do I like these or not? 
If I don't care about them, you just go with a will. Simple. At least if you're in a state like Georgia. Um, if you don't really care about them, well, then you don't, you know, you go with the will. If you care about them, then you go with the revocable trust. And one of the, one of the benefits is if you live in a bad probate state like Florida, it is a must. But then everything else, I guess the other 10 benefits are kind of like, uh, all depends on you and do you care or not. Okay. So, um, is, is there a limit as to the nature of assets that can go into a trust? For example, can I chuck anything in there? Stock, securities, real estate, Bitcoin, or are there limits to the kind of assets that, that can be placed into a trust? You can put in any asset you can fathom with the following exceptions. You do not want to transfer an IRA or a qualified retirement plan. And normally you don't really want to do annuities either into a trust while you're alive. The annuities is a question that's a, we'll hold that off on that one. IRAs and qualified plans. You can change them from the custodian, from one custodian to another, like a Fidelity to a Schwab. You cannot change the title on the account. If you change the title on the account, it's an income taxable event. So if you go from yourself to your trust, you've changed title. Uh, we believe that that is an income taxable event, and that is a horror show. You do not want to do that. You'll Whoever helps you do that, you're going to be really upset when you get that massive tax bill. Um, so anything else, you can put in the trust, uh, but not that. The other exception would be, and I'm not, again, I'm not a Florida lawyer, but under Florida law, there is something called homestead. And the question is whether or not uh, you should put your primary residence in uh, the revocable trust. Um, and that's something I will leave to Florida lawyers. But um, so those are the only two things that I would worry about. Okay. Once, once you set a trust up and you get it going, do you have to do anything else? I mean, is it, is it a fairly self-maintained thing or is there any ongoing maintenance that you have to perform to, to keep it active? Great question. All right. So while you're alive, you're the creator. While you're alive, it is considered a grantor trust for income tax purposes. That means that the grantor, the creator, you, the creator, are the taxpayer. The trust will use your social security number as its tax ID number. All of the income uh, deductions, all that stuff that happens inside the trust will be on your IRS form 1040, your personal income tax return. It is not a separate taxpayer. So while you're alive, the only issues are title. You want to make sure to the extent you want the assets in the trust, you need to put title in the trustee of the trust and that puts it in the trust. Anything else happens, uh, you can do whatever you want. You can access and do whatever you want. Um, so while you're alive, there isn't a whole lot at all. Just any assets you want in it, you got to own in the right name. Other than that, it's, it's all self-executing. It's not, nothing else really needs to be done. You can just treat it just like you own the, you can treat it just like you own the asset. Invest it how you want, use it how you want, that kind of thing. However, after you die, after the grantor, the creator dies, it now becomes a non-grantor trust because the grantor is now deceased. It can't be the taxpayer. So now the trust is a separate income taxpayer. It will file, so there's three things after death or a non-grantor trust, which you could, in theory, you could have a non-grantor trust while you're alive, and that would normally be for income tax reasons. But assuming you, you, 
the only time most trusts that are non-grantor trusts are created after someone dies because the creator is now deceased. And that trust, because they separate income taxpayer, needs a separate EIN number, employee identification number, tax ID number. Uh, and so you care about one, it will file an annual income tax return. That's additional hassle. Number two, um, you have to own the asset in the right name. That's just a setup issue, just like while you're alive, just got the title in the right name. That's no big deal. And number three, there's usually a little, not a lot, a little income tax planning. And the reason is because you now have a choice as to who the taxpayer is going to be. If the assets were just in the name of the beneficiaries that you were choosing, your spouse, your kids, whoever, and it was in their name, they're the taxpayer. There's no choice. If you put it in a trust for their benefit, now there's a choice. Basically, the tax return that is filed, this IRS form 1041, it kind of is just an informational tax return. And it says how much income was earned during the year, how much expenses were incurred during the year, what's the net taxable income. And then it says, through this thing called distributable net income or DNI, let's not talk about that, it's a little technical, but the effect is it says who got the income. So if the income is accumulated in the trust, the trust pays the tax on the income at its rate. If the income was distributed to a beneficiary, it carries out the taxable income with it, and the beneficiary will pay the tax. It doesn't create income. It allocates income to whoever got it. So that's the hassle factor. Own assets in the right name, file an annual income tax return, and you may have to have a little bit of tax planning to decide who you want to pay tax on the earnings that year. Now, um, let, let, let's say that this, this question may self-answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, uh, if, if we've changed our mind and we don't want to have the trust anymore, how easy are, there, are they to dissolve? And I guess I'm going to focus on the, the, the distinction between revocable versus irrevocable. When we say irrevocable, how irrevocable is that? Is that is that that's a great question, or is it really hard, or what? What does that all mean? It used to be harder. Um, so let's start with the easy one: revocable trust. You can revoke them, change them, terminate anytime you want. Uh, take the assets in, take the assets out. If you wanted to get rid of it for good, you do a piece of paper and you say, I "Hereby, based on the the power given to me under this this provision of the trust." I hereby terminate the agreement and sign it and date it, and you're done. Now let's go to irrevocable. With irrevocable, it is irrevocable, which means, in general, you cannot change it. Now, a couple exceptions. Number one, you still can use the provisions in the trust. Hence, the reason to use a good trust agreement. Hence, you need a good attorney to draft a very flexible, uh, trust agreements because you have to live with this thing. You or your beneficiary have to live with this thing over a long, potentially a long period of time and you want it as flexible as possible, as legally possible because things will happen. So a buddy of mine told me this decades ago and it's stuck with me ever since he read it somewhere else and that is the only thing constant in life is change. So I just assume everything is going to change. I know what the facts are today. I have no idea what they're going to be Tomorrow, I can make educated guests beyond that. Good luck. So we want the trust to be as flexible as possible. 
So you can actually use the terms of the trust to terminate it, to distribute assets, to distribute in further trust, do all kinds of stuff. Um, so the ability to change, for the most part, is built into the documents themselves. If you have an irrevocable trust that is not flexible, it's inflexible, then that's it's a, not a pleasant place to be. And I've had a lot of people come to my offices who are not happy uh, with their trustee. They can't, this, the documents allow them to change them. They're not happy with the terms, not allowed to change them, and they're not happy. We don't have those issues. Good lawyers don't have those issues. They draft for maximum flexibility. Now, there is, that's law has been around since I've been well before I became a lawyer in 1987. The new laws, which Georgia got in July, as of July 1, 2018, and other states are starting to, starting to go through the country, is a new power. And the new power is the power to amend one way or another, there's different ways to do it, and otherwise irrevocable trust. And so that would include one of the following. Number one, a judicial, judicial, court-based modification. Uh, that's number one. It had to read certain requirements and you do it for certain reasons. Number two, you can do, uh, you can have a trust distributed in further trust. So if you want to change the terms with, there's our technical rules with this, you may be able to distribute the trust assets into another trust with desired changes to the terms. Um, you can also do what's called, at least in Georgia, you can do a non-judicial settlement. So instead of um, filing a lawsuit, fighting it out, and then settling, uh, agreeing to legitimate a legitimate concern about the trust, uh, you can now, within certain parameters, with certain parties involved and all, you got to follow the rules, you may be able to change the trust agreement by agreement of all of the beneficiaries. And there's different ways to get everyone to agree. Uh, and so there's, it's still being fleshed out. It's still a pretty new law. But now the big picture is we now have potential options to modify an otherwise irrevocable trust that did not exist before. So what are the risks involved with setting up a trust? What, what, what can go wrong? How, how can it cause harm? All right. So here's, this is the most obvious one. Um, I'll give you a real live example. 2012, more assets were gifted than in the history of Earth. And the reason was the exemption from the estate tax was going to go from 5 million to 1 million on January 1, 2013, unless they changed the law. And so if you had a decent amount of wealth, you're like, wait a second, I'm going to lose me and my wife or me and my spouse are going to lose $4 million of exemption each. The exemption at that time uh, was low, but it historically is 55 cents in a dollar. So that's eight, potentially eight, a married couple, $8 million, single person, $4 million of exemption, potentially at 50 plus percent rate. We're talking millions of dollars of taxes that could be avoided if we could somehow lock in that exemption before it went away. On January 1, 2013. So we had tried, a lot of advisors had tried to get their clients to do taxable gifting to lock in this benefit. But of course, to lock in the benefit, you've got to give assets away. 
you give them, if you give them outright, you literally gave them away. If you do them in a flexible trust, then you gave away practically, gave away legally, but not practically. But there is something you're giving up. No matter how you slice it, you're giving up some, some direct rights if you do a taxable gift in this, in, in, to get the exemption locked in. So the people that really didn't want to do it but had a lot of assets, way to the last the very minute. We basically bought and said, we don't have time. You need to go somewhere else. But a bunch of lawyers at the last very minute were just popping out these trusts with n very few questions being asked, uh, no analysis being done. So they got all these trusts in the last very minute, and then they put all these assets in. And then within two weeks, Congress uh, changes the law and makes the 2012 law essentially permanent with a couple exceptions. And that was the 2012 Tax Act that occurred beginning of 2013. So guess what happened? Massive numbers of people who did those gifts in trust wanted their money back. We never had that problem. We went through the analysis, properly drafted the documents, very flexible, all that stuff. But they wanted, they made a big mistake. They wanted their money back. It's not so easy to get your money back. Um, so they went through a lot of angst about that. Um, I don't know how it went because we didn't deal with any of those. Um, but if you if you do revocable trust, you get your, you can undo it. It's not a problem. But if you do irrevocable trust, you are actually doing something irrevocably. You need to go with your eyes wide open as to what you're doing. You're either okay with it or you're not. If you're not okay with it, don't do it. Period. If you're okay with it, fine, move forward. But um, you need to think through it, and that's what we that's what we help our clients go through, and make sure they understand. When we draft for maximum flexibility so they don't ever have second thoughts about it. Uh, but the other is we want to make sure their eyes are wide open as to what they're actually doing, what it means. One of the risks that a trust may be challenged and effectively dissolved um, uh, with, without consent by either, say, a government entity or even, even a beneficiary that doesn't like the way the terms are set up, how, how common an occurrence is that? Is that a real risk? I would say the bigger risk is the fight. So litigation, uh, think divorce, but as bad or worse. So when you get to a trusted estate dispute, it gets nasty, really nasty. Um, there are no winners. It's nasty. So our goal, and good lawyers' goal, is to avoid the fight from ever happening. And so you do that in a, in the following ways. Um, let me, let me back up. How could they challenge? So they could challenge based on it was a forgery. So it really wasn't your document. You didn't sign it or didn't sign it properly. Number two, uh, it was duress. You know, someone had a gun to your head, undue influence. They were overtaking your mental state so much that it really wasn't your desire. It was their desire. Uh, that, you know, you could be losing your mental state, you're either incapacitated or you're in that, uh, that kind of transitional phase you can take advantage of. Uh, there's all kind of stuff in there where, yeah, this trust agreement exists. That really wasn't what you wanted. That's what someone else wanted and got you to do, or they just came up with it from scratch. And you don't know anything about it because it's a fraud. Uh, so there's those kinds of legal positions that could be taken, claims could be made. And the goal is to think through the plan well and then make sure 
that it cannot be challenged. One of the ways that you can make sure it cannot be challenged is that the document will include an in terrarum clause. That is a provision. Not all states allow it. Georgia does. Florida does not, as far as I'm aware. I think California does not. Um, there's a theme with Florida and California. Um, so in Georgia, it absolutely works. And it basically says, uh, and here's how my, this is my kind of common way of talking about it. Basically says, hey, we spent a lot of time, a lot of money doing this plan. We want it to work and we don't want anyone to fight about it. And so if you fight about it, you get nothing. So technically what it says is if you do something to dispute the terms of the plan, not the administration of the plan, but the terms of the plan, then you can get nothing. And the only way, and this is a hot topic in Georgia, the only way we know of not to have it apply in a state like Georgia is to, ha- is to be able to go to court and prove that the entire document is void. Um, there is a, actually, this is, this is not good. There's a Georgia's Court of Appeals case that just came out, and this was sad and pathetic, and basically said that even though the jury held that the trust was obtained through undue influence, it should not be valid. They said the interim clause still worked and the people who challenged it didn't get anything. That is, is an insane analysis. It makes no sense. Um, and so the Supreme Court hopefully will take that up. This is brand new, just came out. Uh, the Supreme Court of Georgia is going to hopefully take that up and uh, overrule that decision, which is insane, by personal opinion, uh, and the position of many others. Um, otherwise, criminals will just take over. Uh, we don't want criminals to take over. So if you go about doing this properly, spending the time, the resources, do it properly, think through it, add an interim clause, the chances of it being challenged is close to zero for normal estate planning documents. There is one exception, and that would be someone is defrauding someone else. And this is in the asset protection arena where someone is avoiding the government, someone is avoiding a spouse, someone is avoiding a creditor, and they are taking actions behind everyone's back to basically do what we refer to as a fraudulent or avoidable transfer, which is a transfer with the intent to avoid, delay, or defeat a potential creditor claim. And that those could be challenged uh, because someone is trying to abuse somebody else, and their only way to uh, get, what they're, get what they're supposed to get is to fight about it. In that case, you're not fighting with someone who did something good. You're fighting with someone who is a bad actor who's trying to abuse somebody else. Assuming they were a bad actor. Now, it could be they were doing everything is totally proper and someone's just getting aggressive with them and they're just doing the best they can. Um, but I hope that answers your question. It does. We're talking with Richard Morgan and the topic is, should I set up a trust? Um, is there, are there any restrictions on who the beneficiaries of a trust could be? It, they have to be human beings with, uh, so any human beings, anyone, uh, can be beneficiaries. Uh, the, so the stories of a, the stories of a millionaire making a cat a beneficiary, those are just that, the stories. So right? I was, was going to bring that one up. 
There is one exception. Well, it has to be a human being. There is an exception for if, if state law allows it. There is an exception for a pet trust. So I think it was Leona Helmsley who went to jail for uh, tax evasion. I believe I believe it was her uh, that she left millions of dollars. I think a huge amount of money in trust for her pets. Um, you can now create a pet trust in Georgia, and the reason you do that is if there's a lot of money involved, not normal money, but big money involved to take care of pets um, over the, the life of the pets, um, and you want to separate the person taking care of the pets from the one managing the money. <coughs> so, but most people don't do pet trust, but yeah, that is an exception. Otherwise, it has to be human beings. Okay. And, and what about selecting a trustee? Are, are there any restrictions as to who a trustee can or cannot be for a, a given trust? Yes. So a trust, at least in, under Georgia law, state law specific, uh, under Georgia law, and I think most states, it has to be an individual. If it's a company, it has to be a trust company. There is some, hmm. there's one exception in Georgia, and Georgia might be a little bit conservative on this stuff. I don't know about other states. Um, so in Georgia, if an individual, uh, a qualified trust company, or one non, and all, I think all of them are bank type trust companies, except one called Reliance Trust Company, which came in like a few decades ago. And then they changed the law on them so no one else could do it. But also a bunch of trust companies that work in Georgia, that service Georgia clients, they actually come from Tennessee or other states, and they are able to do business in Georgia. Um, and I don't know that all of them are banks. So some of them are just uh, trust companies that are not banks. Um, Richard, this has been a great conversation. We've covered so much ground here, and you've been so generous with your time and expertise. And I, I think we've only scratched the surface of what there is for people to know about trust as they think about this decision. It, if there are questions that we either didn't cover or we didn't cover in enough depth for one of our listeners, can somebody contact you with a question? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Yes, thank you. So um, I would say a couple things. Number one, our law firm has a kind of a whole theme of education based. So we are always happy to educate. And we do that. One of the ways we do that is we put out a monthly newsletter. Right now we have... I think between two and 3,000 people on the newsletter and probably over half of them are professional advisors of some type. So we kind of take it upon ourselves to educate not only our clients, potential clients, uh, other people in the community, but also other advisors, our peer lawyers, CPAs, financial advisors of all types, business appraisers, everyone out there, we're happy for them to be, um, to get educated. And so we do monthly newsletters and uh, news alerts if something big comes out, tax law comes out, or something like that. If you go to our website, uh, www.morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, disalvo, D-I-S-A-L-V-O.com, on our website is all of the stuff that we've put out. If you go to the top, uh, put your cursor on the top or talk about um, news and uh, news and articles, the first drop-down menu right there will be uh, basically our one-stop shop. It's called. It basically goes to a page called the the estate planning journey or something like that. 
and it has one-stop shop of all of our newsletters done by um, different substantive areas. So, for example, should you use a will or revocable living trust, we have newsletters and videos and all that kind of stuff. So all that, all the issues that come up, so if you want to learn, go to the website. We also offer a free estate planning meeting. We're happy to, to help anyone uh, who wants assistance. If they want to set that up, they just call our offices at 678-720-0750 and just ask to set up an initial estate planning meeting and we'll go from there. Have, always happy to help. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Richard Morgan so much for sharing his expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.